Things only matter insofar as they can be inputs into the process of capitalization itself. It, it gets to the sort of ultimate incoherence in the logic of nation-states autonomy. Hey yo, welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who study philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we're going to do a topical-ish kind of thing in the way that we tend to do things where we take a topic and then we probably ignore it halfway through or maybe a quarter of the way through talking about it and start BSing about philosophy stuff. Sound about right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, man. You know, I was thinking this is kind of like an eternal return of the same thing going on because we just did our 100th episode, which is like episode zero, right? And then Ooh. we started this podcast talking about um, like Black Lives Matters issues because that was in the air, uh, you know, more than just that week, but especially that week. So, you know, we don't need a reading. We don't have to have anything to go on, but the world itself, the world is our text. I like that. That's very post-structural of you. I <laughs> thought you hated that no, shit, but I'm, I was I'll referring to like, was it? Who was it? It wasn't Luther, was it? They called it the Book of Nature. It definitely wasn't Luther. Uh, maybe well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it there's, sounds there's like a book of an, the there's the Book of the Holy Spirit or whatever, and there's the Book of Nature, and that's our text. Okay, perfect. Well, let's jump into it. And as Troy is kind of intimating, we're going to be talking about nature, spurred on by the recent events in the Amazon with the fires and um, a lot of the political and commentariat responses to that and we're going to kind of peel back some layers and think about i don't know some more philosophically oriented ways to understand those things and maybe analyze and criticize some of the responses and see what it is that's maybe ideologically conditioning how it is that they're viewing um the crisis disaster etc etc so cool yeah yeah and if you want to support us in uh more tangible ways little aside here you can go to patreon.com slash owlsatdawn and join one of the uh, several tiers of support there. You can get access to things like the monthly newsletter that we sent out with extra sticky leaves and extra shitty minutes, as well as the ability to um, contribute towards choosing a patron-sponsored episode, which we'll be doing again very soon. And I need to just say, I totally slacked on releasing the August Sticky Leaves, uh, or I'm sorry, the August uh, newsletter, but it'll be out. It's out now. So by the time this episode is released, you should have that letter. And then we will do a normal one in September in a few weeks as well. So you'll just get two kind of bunched relatively close together, but things have been crazy on my end. And yeah, we've got a bonus episode out uh, where Troy and I talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And yeah, like Troy said, I guess the philosophy of psychoanalysis one, huh? Yeah, it looks like that one's going to win unless there's a late surge for somebody else. So get out there. You probably got a couple days left to go and cast your vote if you're a patron for the democracy motherfuckers thing. Because right now I think it's like the philosophy of social media and the philosophy of psychoanalysis that are neck and neck. And that will determine what the next patron-led uh, topic is. So make sure you get over there ASAP. But of yeah. course... It's time to get into things, starting off with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is pissing us off. It's Troy's turn, so what's got y'all in a tizzy, my friend? So, my um, shitty minute this week is going to be a kind of classic short rant that anyone who knows me knows that I've made this before. It's it's one of my hobby horses (laughs) in philosophy, so... 
And it took you 101 episodes, I, I guess 50, 50 episodes to get into it? I'm almost positive I've brought this up before, but not in a sustained way. So, okay. um, but it's certainly anyone who knows me knows that in personal space, like in meat space, I've made this uh, argument okay. quite a lot. And it's that the golden rule is an awful moral principle. <laughs> Have I made this, made this case to you? No, I don't think I've ever heard this, but I'm curious now. I feel like I probably have, but maybe not. So the golden rule, the basic idea, as everyone knows, is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Yep. And so the moral principle there is supposed to be a generic moral principle, right? And you can derive specific duties from it is the idea. So anytime you're in a dilemma about what to do, you go back to your trusty 3 by 5 index card that has the moral principle on it. You try and see how it will sort of dictate to you that you should act. Mm-hmm. So you're in a dilemma. You look at it. It says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You figure out what you want, right? And then you do that to somebody else. Yeah. And the problem with that, well, before I get to the problem with that, look at how that might end up with something sort of really poor results in terms of deriving specific duties from some generic rule like that. Imagine someone who thinks that um, their race is superior to other races naturally. And that because of this natural superiority, they are due different or degrees of respect or different degrees of treatments or whatever, right? In that case, does the golden rule do anything to tell you that you should treat the other person who maybe have a different race than you, maybe have a different gender or sex than you, um, the same way you would treat yourself? No, because you imagine, well, if I was them, I would deserve this certain kind of treatment. And so I should still treat them that way. So someone who's, say, a white supremacist might look at an African-American person and say, well, I should do unto them as they would do unto me, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't deserve the same degree of respect that I do. Mm-hmm. So if the roles were switched, then I would also think that I am inferior to them and therefore should sort of respect them at different degrees than they respect me. So um, this is, I think, even just a really general way of understanding how a sort of um, white supremacist mind might work, right? If you look back at uh, like antebellum South stuff, pre-Civil War, and even after, a lot of the justifications for mistreatment of blacks and even for slavery beforehand had to do with the idea that, that African-Americans were inferior intellectually and in other ways, and therefore actually should be grateful that they're given the chance to live in the white man's land. Right? So it wasn't just mm-hmm. a, we should mistreat you because we think you're a piece of shit or whatever. No, it's usually like, no, you have a place in the society. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a certain role, but it's an inferior role compared to mine. Mm-hmm. The same sort of logic can apply to mistreatment of women and did for, you know, it still does for a lot of people. So I think the issue with the golden rule is that it's perfectly consistent with a racist or unjust sort of metaphysical background from which it can um, be used to delineate specific rules that don't in any way challenge that background. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. But don't you think most people just think of the golden rule as like, like, let me just pause in a vacuum as an individual and think, how do I want to be treated? I want to be treated fairly and with respect and kindly, and maybe I want to be desired or something along those lines. So maybe I should treat other people with respect and care and allow them to have opportunities for flourishing so that they too can be desired or whatever. I mean, that that's I mean that's maybe like a real like 
mealy-mouthed interpretation of it. But I feel like that's what people really mean when they're trying to articulate it. Whereas you're kind of making it more like if it's an axiomatic absolute, then it's really limited. Well, here's the issue, dude. What if you're into freaky shit? Yeah, I'm sometimes into some freaky shit. Yeah, so that means you should do freaky shit to other people? Well, no, no, because it's not saying treat <laughs> it's it's not saying treat other people and do to them in the same way of uh, like everything. Like I like broccoli, therefore I'm going to stuff broccoli down people's faces when I walk past them on the street, right? I don't think it's quite saying that, but it's it's saying the general principle of the freedom to be able to be into freaky shit. Well, then I should allow this person to explore not being into freaky shit, right? So it was abstracting away from the particular to get to the sort of like logical or the contextual. Yeah, I don't think that that exists. That sort of like liberal definition where there's like equal degrees of respect and treatment of others is not embedded anywhere in the golden rule, right? It yeah. literally just says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So if you like things, they must like the same things too. So do those things to them. <laughs> That's literally what it says. So I think that yeah. the problem really is that the way that I think it actually cuts against that more open-ended liberal like generic uh, version of the principle is right. that it, it makes you introspect about yourself when thinking about what to do rather than consideration of the other person, right? It yeah. thinks about what you personally have affection for. Um, whereas I think, you know, morality, a big part of it is to abstract away from your own personal desires, your own personal ends, and consider as an sort of objective, um, you know, like individual soul hovering above yourself, looking at yourself and yeah. others what they deserve, right? And how that should affect what you do. And I don't think the golden rule does a very good job of helping you do that. I think it makes you just sort of isolate. Mm. It's interesting. I almost think that, I think that there's kind of a problem of translation though, right? So when you do, and I agree that the biggest problem with the golden rule is that it's ultimately, it's supposed to issue from a sort of like solipsism, right? And then supposedly it then filters outwards, but then how do you ever get out of that that inward turn, so to speak. That's kind of where it seems to ultimately fall short for me um, because it starts with you, like just be focused so much on self and then work outwards from there. But maybe you never actually cross that barrier and you still just end up being selfish. But what I wonder is, is there always, even if you try to attune yourself to the desires of the other and you try to meet them where they're at and to respect them and their wishes and their desires or whatever it is, to try to understand other cultures. I mean, that's kind of what we try to do with social studies and with various other fields of inquiry into other cultures, other people, other situations, other contexts, other histories, whatever. But isn't there always a sense in which there's kind of a metaphorical relation from our own context? And so there's a problem of translation. So as much as we're trying, as much as in, as much information as we can get, as much analysis, as much time we can spend, as much empathy as we can sort of muster in our outward attunement, there's always going to be a sense in which it's almost like we're making analogs, you know? Like I feel like it's always there's always going to be like a – there's always a paradox there. I feel like. And so there's a, a warring with that that's kind of solipsism that is kind of difficult to get out of, but then at the same time um, with with peeling that back so that you can be more open to the quote-unquote other in itself, if that even is possible. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that that's, there's like an epistemic problem there. Um, yeah. I think that problem exists in internally as well, right? In terms of like understanding your own desires, obviously, given oh, the psychoanalytic yeah. background we both have, we both think that, right? So that epistemic yeah. problem exists both ways. 
But I do think that, you know, it's going to be mixed. It's never just one or the other. But we are able, uniquely, I think, as humans, to abstract and view ourselves and others as objects. We can abstract from our own desires and think about whether or not we should fulfill them. We can abstract Mm. from our own ends and think about whether or not they're the right thing to do, given the ends of others that exist around us. Um, It's really hard, and we're really limited in our understanding and knowledge of those things, right? It's very, very much a fraught enterprise. Um, Mm. But we can do that. And I think that any moral principle that sort of short circuits that ability or doesn't in any way include that ability or sort of maybe even just focuses more on the internal aspect isn't really getting us to the part of morality that's important or the foundation of morality that's important. That's our ability to to abstract, not just to isolate and solipsize. Do you think it has value, the golden rule? Like if you're, imagine yourself as like a, a, a father and it's like youth league soccer or something like that. And you're kind of like, all right, kids, you know, just make sure we respect each other and treat each other. You know, you pull the kid to the side and you're like, hey, now you wouldn't want that person to punch, you wouldn't want that person to punch you in the face, right? So like you shouldn't punch that person in the face. Like, do you think there's a sense in which it has like a dialectical role in the unfolding of totalization or complexity or something like that? Yeah, I'm glad you bring up this example because this is exactly how it always comes out, right? As a pedagogical right. tool for kids to sort of stoke empathy is the idea, yeah, right? Yeah. Empathy yeah. being the motivator for moral action, right? So it kind of trains them to eventually do it to themselves, right? Oh man, how would I feel if that person did that to me? And then you can kind of stoke your own empathy and then motivate your own moral action when it's hard to do so otherwise. And I think, I mean, that's like a moral psychology question, whether or not that actually really works in the end. Mm. Um, I don't really know the answer to that. It's an empirical question. But Mm. I I do wonder if maybe a, a slightly better version would be just to ask the child, do you think it's right to do that? And then see where they go. Where does where, where the thought process go? Where does their reasoning go in thinking about that? And maybe as a, as a part of that, you can bring up how they would feel if it was done to them. But as the guiding principle, I think it's a little <clears throat> problematic because, again, it tries to just like build in this sort of robotic impulse to stoke your own empathy and then guide your action. And I, I have problems with that. We talked previously about Paul Bloom's Against Empathy. And um, I think that as much as there's some things about that uh, his his book and his ideas that I'm not down for. I do think that there's some respect in which empathy can be dangerous when it's the sole motivator of moral action, or, it, or it's kind of yeah. cast a leading role when it comes to motivating moral action. And that kind of goes or, or, hand in hand with what I'm talking about here in terms of um, I would rather the person think hard about what's right rather than think hard about how they would feel in certain situations. Right. Yeah, because I mean, in a way, you're kind of getting at the metaphysical underpinning, because when you ask the kid, do you think it's right to do X, Y, and Z, and you wait to see where the child goes, the question with per, per, that pertains to the golden rule is that is it right because of an empathic undergirding, that that which underpins and determines rightness and wrongness has to do with empathy as being the sort of primary or fundamental, as you called it, motivator, but it it, before it even becomes the motivator, it becomes the foundation upon which motivation is supposedly supposed to issue, right? So it becomes a good in itself, a foundational, fundamental kind of a priori category that is fixed in place. And that's the question that I think you're ultimately trying to contest, right? Is should that be that metaphysical absolute from which 
motivation issues. Yeah. Yeah, because we know that empathy is usually just naturally um, directed towards people who look and sound and act similar to us. And we tend yeah. to just naturally have less empathy for those who aren't like us. And you can retrain yourself um, over time to have empathy in other directions. But there's there's always going to be that natural impulse to empathize more with people who are like you than those who are not. And I think that's exactly when you need to abstract away from sort of, I don't want to make a, a clear reason versus irrational versus emotional divide yeah. here, but you need to sort of abstract a little bit away from um, how you feel in a situation. Think a little bit more abstractly about what's right. And so that doesn't mean that if you ask a child, what's the right thing to do in this situation, they're going to have a good answer. Of course they're not, right? But they're <laughs> going to be able to have an answer because from two years old, children are able to make moral distinctions between things that are categorically imperative and things that are not. Um, we've talked about this before mm-hmm. on the podcast. And so children, even at a very young age, are able to think about those categories. They don't have to be sort of uh, inculcated with them or trained with them extensively. They can think about them. They don't think about them well, think about mm-hmm. them poorly, but they can understand the concepts. So I don't think it's it's too much to ask that individuals think about those kind of concepts. Then they uh, purely think about training individuals robotically to feel empathy. Now that doesn't say empathy is bad, obviously in and of itself, but it's a tool and we shouldn't rely upon it entirely. Hmm. It's interesting that you talk about the golden rule and you're kind of being critical because, you know, one of the greatest exponents of this idea is Jesus, who also is very famous for the um, parable of the Good Samaritan, which is precisely that kind of outward turn, right? Of, of not just, um, of not just kind of like having an empathic connection, but almost kind of having a principled disposition towards the other, to love your enemy kind of thing. And do you, I, I don't know if there are contradictions there or if, if like one issues from the other or if they're connected, but what do you think? Yeah, so I think that like the example of the Good Samaritan is exactly what I'm talking about. So it doesn't seem like to me um, the do unto others as you'd have them do unto you is exactly a, a really good um, sort of foundational principle for that parable, right? Right, because it's precisely not somebody of your same culture or of your same position. It's literally the radical other. Like, that's the whole point, is that the Samaritans were despised by the Israelites. Yeah, exactly. So I think that, I mean, it's hard to say exactly what motivates the the Samaritan in this story, because you don't really know, right? He just kind of, he or she just kind of does it. So um, it's it's hard to say exactly what's going on there. But yeah, uh, that's kind of the problem with uh, general, really generic moral principles, is uh, they, Mm. they make some interpretation. (laughs) <laughs> yeah cool alright so what do you say burn the fucker down is that what you're saying no no I think that I, I usually start <laughs> that way you know and I make that claim about you know um, do unto others that you would have them do unto you but what if you like freaky shit should you do freaky shit to other people um, <laughs> just because it's kind of a catch all thing and it gets people excited because no one no one ever says the golden rule is bad right Right. Um, right. so that's, that's more of just like a hot take but I, I think it can play a role in sort of a moral pedagogy. I just don't like the idea that it's the, it's the, it's like the generic moral principle from which all of, all other principles and duties can be derived. I think that that's false, and it can be for sure not necessarily dangerous, but it can be misguided when um, viewed that way. Yeah, I feel you, man. I'm surprised that it's taken you, I don't know what, twelve years or fucking however many years we've known each other <laughs> for me to hear this quintessential rant of yours. <laughs> oh, I feel like I, I would have brought it up before, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm sure at over Chinese food at some point in the past. Yeah, that MSG really clouds the brain, so you can't remember it. <laughs> That's true, man. Just bringing that up actually makes me hungry. <laughs> You've been trained well. <laughs>
on like intergovernmental panels and whatnot for climate change and things like that who say that that's overinflated, that the number isn't entirely accurate because simultaneously as much oxygen as the rainforest produces, it actually consumes quite a bit because plants have to convert uh, oxygen through other processes. And there were other explanations. I, I'm not a scientist, but I, I read some other things that were kind of like, guys, we get it. It's an interesting rhetorical ploy. It looks great on like an Instagram meme, but it isn't um, it isn't as accurate empirically as uh, as people are trying to tout it as. So, but that's kind of secondary, I think. Um, to be honest, I think because because that still kind of reduces it to a functional role, right? It's a it's a purely kind of functional argument, and I'm not saying that we can't have that type of discussion, but I think that we could even go at this in a more circuitous route than rather trying to say like, you know, it's uh, it's like depleting the functional resources and so therefore we're going to be bereft of oxygen from one of our key sources or something like that. Just because it doesn't, I don't know, it, it seems like it's kind of a contested point. No, that's a good point, right? Um, I was just uh, displaying that figure uncritically, but it's yeah, a good yeah. point that whether true or not, it's a, it sort of tells on itself a little bit or you tell on yourself um, I tell on myself when using that as the um, sort of beginning of the argument or like premise one of the argument, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's, it's taking um, the Amazon and purely making it a function for human survival or not just human right. survival, but animal survival, right? Things that need oxygen to survive. Right. Um, not necessarily wrong. It's certainly a part of it is um, that destroying nature in some ways destroys part of nature, which includes us. We're part of nature. Hmm. So that plays a role, but um, we don't want to jump immediately into that before thinking a little bit more about uh, sort of metaphysical backdrop, right? What is nature in the first place before we start talking about why we should value it? Got to know what it is in the first place. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, before we even get into that, though, I think it's really interesting that you notice that or that you noted that the burn patterns that the what did you say? Like that the that the source of the actual burn patterns are along lines that have already been cleared, which uh, seems to indicate that this is kind of an intentionally started set of fires by agribusiness or people that have a vested interest in clearing some land for economic profit, which again makes me think about um, like uh, a region or a nation's sources of wealth and how they understand their resources as factors of production or as inputs you know, the three kind of classical from political economy are land, labor, and capital. So land has to be kind of converted into an economic asset. And that Bolsonaro's uh, words in the past and potentially these fires maybe being sort of like deputies that have come from his um, his pronouncements in the past, they seem to be uh, enactments of trying to convert something into assets for capitalization right and so you clearly have this uh, again it's a it's a functionalist it's an instrumental view of trees of ecosystems of earth of soil of uh, of life of whatever terms we want to attach to this other thing that we call nature and it's trying to turn it into a productive resource that can work for capital that can work for vested interests that can work as an input that will then produce a bounty on the back end and 
I, I think that to me is kind of one of the most telling things because it just, it speaks to that dominant logic that is every fucking where, but it, it's just such a bold-faced instantiation of that dominating logic of the logic of capitalism, not capitalism as a mode of production, but capitalism as a mode of rationality that says that things only matter insofar as they can be inputs into the process of capitalization itself. Therefore, the Amazon rainforest doesn't matter as the quote-unquote lungs of the earth, even if we are going to grant it that status. It doesn't matter as the home of indigenous peoples, which is also another uh, extremely important factor. Uh, that, that doesn't matter under the logic of capitalism. It only matters insofar as it can be mobilized so that it can be appropriated to work for capital. And that, I think, is is really telling and I think um, one of the most disturbing things about the kind of isomorphic tendency of the logic of capitalism is it does that with everything. And this is just one example of that. And you know, what's really important about considering that more abstract um, perspective on it is that when you abstract and you, and you come up with this more general way of looking at it, um, that applies not just to Brazil's current reaction or some people in Brazil's current reaction to the burning of the Amazon, that applies everywhere. At yeah. that vantage point, there's no, really no structural uh, or general difference between Norway taking out oil from the North Sea as mm. there is in Amazon mm. burning the rainforest. Mm. There, in the general sense, that same logic is applying, right? It looks different because we react much more strongly to things that are visually striking, like the incredible you know, rainforest burning down mm. to just you know dredging up oil from the North Sea, which most of which you don't really see, and a lot of the effects of it in terms of carbon emissions are kind of invisible to us. But structurally, they're pretty much the same thing, different degrees, and I don't want to argue about degrees there, but um, it's telling that our reactions to them are very different, mostly, I would think, based upon the visual strikingness of yeah. what's happening, and also probably the intensity and, and speed with which it's happening. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, it makes me think of this um, political economist, political ecologist named Jason W. Moore, who writes a lot on like the capitalist scene. But he wrote a book called Capitalism and the Web of Life. And he talks about the four cheaps of capitalism. It's cheap nature, cheap energy, um, wait, cheap energy, cheap nature, cheap food. And oh, I can't remember what the fourth one is. What did I say? Cheap nature, cheap energy, cheap food, and cheap labor. Um and what you talked about is uh, just two different expressions of like the appropriation of capitalism's search for cheap. Well, one is cheap energy and one is cheap nature, right? The Amazon is cheap nature, clearing land for um, for agribusiness or for pastoral business, and then the extraction of oil for energy, right? So cheap sources of energy, and then capitalism has to appropriate it. But then that same logic also applies. If we're going to say it applies in one and then in the other, let's apply it to labor so that when you get paid a wage, you're being appropriated and converted into an asset for capitalization, which is a similar kind of process. Now, again, difference of degrees has um, different effects, is uh, has different implications for how it's applied in each of those different contexts. But again, I think it still operates by this larger logic of Maybe this is a new interpretation of the invisible hand rather than the invisible hand being understood as this supreme force that makes everything in an equilibrium. It's this constant like converting process where everything is subsumed under or in Jason Moore's terms appropriated into the logic of capital to work for capitalism. And that's what he says. He 
that capitalism is appropriating these sources of those four cheaps in order to employ them to work for capital. I think that's really fucking interesting to think about that as just like a larger dominant logic that kind of functions across all of these various terrain. Yeah, I like that because that, that brings in, um, you know, sort of naturally given resources like the rainforest yeah. and oil in the ground and then involves um, human beings as part of the same sort of uh, strata, right, as acid, acidized labor, right, commodified labor. So um, that's really good, I think, as a even more abstract way of looking at it that sort of brings to view the underpinnings of all of this. It all follows uh, the same sort of foundational logic in the end. But here's here's one thing that I'm, I'm concerned about. It seems to me if we if we view it just through that sort of um, ideological or economic, political economy, ideological lens, then there's some sense in which we might still say, well, if capitalism's being efficient and rational, then it's not going to just use up the resources that it has. And also, especially not going to do it in such a way that it's going to sort of destroy um, or slowly destroy and degrade um, humanity um, itself, including the labor and uh, the ability to have uh, more resources in the end. Yeah. So there's some other logic at work there um, that seems to be sort of s- straddling alongside the one that we're talking about here, or at least making it not possible to think in those terms. Like, what's the the mm. obvious short termism involved in burning the Amazon rainforest? Like, it's it's clear to everyone, right? That mm. The idea of just burning the rainforest down so we can have extra farmland, mm. which is not going to be the like most usable farmland <laughs> over the long term yeah. because of things like burning the rainforest, right? There's mm-hmm. an obvious short termism there that that just begs irrationality. And so, um, what what do we say about that? Where is that coming from? Yeah, I mean, this is where I think it actually opens the door to the more metaphysical concerns, which is where social science oftentimes is blind. Uh, And so they fall short of their ability to be able to kind of go to these deeper levels. But so, for example, exactly what you just said is where environmental economists uh, try to take things. But the problem with environmental economics is that it still divides nature up into some sort of quantifiable bit, right? Now, it tries to do so respectably or sustainably or um, in a way that doesn't just have that short-termism that you talked about. But nevertheless, there seems to be something else going on that it's still instrumentalizing the world. And so then I would say, is that idea that nature is this instrumental good that we are like the custodians over or that we have dominance over or supremacy over, even if we view ourselves as participants in sharing nature, it still seems to presume because it's an instrumental relationship, a relationship of priority and subordination, right, that humans have priority over the tools of the earth or humans have priority over the resources that they have been bestowed or endowed with and therefore either in a paternalistic sense they're supposed to be responsible with those things you know that's kind of a theological maybe christian type of reading of it or or maybe even um certain kinds of eco-friendly views even if they're progressive might kind of see things that way that that we uh, have been given this gift of nature and we ought to take care of it there's kind of a progressive paternalism there. Um, so I think that that would be kind of an interesting way to really kind of scrape beneath all of this stuff and say, well, is that 
What's wrong with the instrumentalist view itself at a metaphysical or at a at a at an ontological level? But don't you don't you think? I think the point I'm trying to make is that the instrumentalist view of nature, I think, is definitely a part of this, and it's a huge part of this, maybe even the dominant part. But by itself, can't explain why what's happening is happening, because even from an instrumentalist view, um, a person is destroying the instrument in using it, right? So it's like a a person in a factory using a machine incorrectly, knowingly using a machine incorrectly in such a way it's going to destroy the machine in the very short term. So they're not even going to have the instrument, right? So that that begs an explanation more than just, well, the person is just doing this as a means to an end. Well, it can't just be that because if they really value that end, then rationally they would keep the means in good shape so as to keep mm. uh, gaining or completing the end, right? But they're not doing that. So there must be something else going on that's, uh, or some other things going on, other factors to consider which are contributing towards this that are uh, needed to explain the fact that the instrument itself is not even being valued instrumentally, seemingly. Mm. Yeah, I guess that is interesting because it's not being valued because it's on a hierarchy of other values and um, the untouched forest doesn't seem to have immediate practicality for industrialization, for example, right? Except that it's kind of in the way or that it can be cleared and that it's not really that big of a deal. Like, yeah, we need trees and clearly we need oxygen, but things are, things are okay. We're doing all right. Like, fuck it. We need, we have other priorities. The other priorities are let's get our GDP growth to increase. So again, yeah. it's hard for me to move away from there still being that kind of like, there's still a technological logic. It's just that it it can devalue one in order to value the other. So you clear the trees in order to clear land for pastoral and agricultural industry, right? Yeah, I think so, that's exactly right. I think the hierarchy of values that you said at the beginning is just exactly correct about okay. that, um, which is I think itself also wrong in addition to and like appendage as an appendage to the instrumentalist logic of nature that we're talking about. And that's that, you know, if you, and you can see this really clearly when you hear arguments from uh, individuals in Brazil who support um, what's, what's happening in terms of the, um, the burning of the rainforest. And that's, or at least not necessarily supporting it, but as a counter argument to the argument from others in um, like the West who have sort of, uh, argued that this should uh, cease happening and that it's destructive. And that's that the individual has no rights to tell Brazil what to do with its resources. Um, no one mm. else is able to tell Norway not to dredge up oil from the North Sea. No one's able mm. to tell uh, America what to do with their resources. So who are we to go and tell Brazil what to do with their resources? It's their resources. It belongs to them. Mm. And I think in one sense, that's certainly it's like correct in an awful way, right? That the basic <laughs> yeah. logic underpinning the idea of nation states having autonomous control over their resources um, can be problematic in this exact way. And, you know, certain Brazilians are correct in bringing that up because it would be a double standard to say that uh, Brazil owes um, the rest of the world its custodianship over the Amazon for the sake mm. of the world's betterment. But then that logic applies or that standard applies to nobody else. Everyone else can do whatever the hell they, they want with their resources, right? Um, so they're right to point out that double standard. And that really, I think the problem with that is, of course, it gets to the idea that, well, then we shouldn't have, we need to have that standard everywhere. <laughs> everybody kind of owes everybody else 
um, some sort of uh, dealings in some way with nature, what that is and what nature is, we still have to talk about, but um, it, it gets to the sort of ultimate incoherence in the logic of nation states autonomously controlling the resources. Yeah, I mean, to just go full argumentum ad absurdum, that would be like us saying, let's say uh, you have some island and on this island you have a nuclear reactor and you're like, well, in our airspace, we can do whatever the fuck we want. So we're just going to leak this reactor because we don't give a fuck and you can't say anything about it. But then it's like, yeah, but motherfuckers, it's going to poison the water and it's going to blow into our territory. I mean, because this thing that we call the planet, whether or not you buy into like Gaia theories or whatever, there's some sort of, I love Donna Haraway has a term. Uh, rather than like autopoietic, she calls it sympoietic. And she talks about these like integrative processes that are taking place all the way down, right? Um, in a very sort of like butterfly effect kind of way, except in a much more elegant and I think much more interesting and I would say grounded sense than um, oftentimes the butterfly effect is is used as. But this sympoietic, that there is like a, sim, uh, a symbiosis um, and this also creative... Uh, set of processes like this almost endless boundless set of processes that are taking place that integrate and so like rain that falls on me in sydney could actually literally have no not could very likely at some point in my life i have had rainfall on my head that was carried from the amazon right so <clears throat> there's a sense in which one of the fundamental limitations of the logic of like the liberal logic let's say of the nation state is precisely that idea of ownership the contractual ownership over uh, the territories that you can lay claim to because you can be a bit myopic, right? And and you don't really see that integrative tendency. And so you don't really think about, oh, well, if I poison this river because, you know, you're some sort of like chemical factory and you just kind of like dump your runoff into this river, you don't really think that, well, that might filter from one country down into the next and down into the next, or it might affect some birds and it might have some sort of impact on very sensitive ecosystems, which tend to, you know, they they themselves have hierarchies and they themselves have balances and they're constantly shifting and there are disruptions and there's catastrophism. We need to not be blind and think that it's perfectly harmonious. You know, neo-catastrophism is a, is a very prominent um, way of viewing the ecological predicament that we're a part of. And yeah, shit does go crazy. But at the same time, it's the integrativeness that I think is really like missed when you just think, ah, we've got sovereign control over our fucking waterways or our trees or our forests or our airspace or whatever, you know? Yeah, you know, and the, and the thing that that ecological integration um, really brings to the fore, I think, is the idea that the notion of, of, like, a, of like private property, which is really just yeah. the nation state yeah, yeah. autonomous control thing is just an extension of private property. Um, yeah. from an individual donation state is completely incoherent, right? Because there is no natural sense in which any one thing owns another, whether it's a person to a thing or, or anything else. And mm -hmm. so that has to be sort of um, accumulated, right? That has to be an action, a, a really ultimately a violent action has to be undergone whereby a thing mm -hmm. is restricted from everybody but one. And this is one of my favorite, you know, kind of arguments against like the libertarian impulse about you know, deriving some natural sense in which property is accrued through an individual doing something to a piece of a land or, or some natural resource. And then it becomes their property through some like you know, natural mystical process or whatever. And it's that ultimately property is just restricting access to all but one. And it really gets to the sort of unfreedom 
at the heart of that idea of property, right? Mm. Because it's not free for everybody to use, which is really, if anything, is the natural state of things. It's something like that. Um, it's instead saying, no, everyone else is restricted from access to this but one. And that can only be done in the first instance through a taking, right? Mm. Through a kind of theft from everybody else. And that logic is just extended to the nation state when saying that the Amazon belongs to Brazil or the oil in the North Sea belongs to Norway or the land in the New World belongs to you know, colonial uh, Western Europeans who have just arrived here. Hmm. Um, and that obviously is a kind of theft in the case of like Native American genocide, in the case of slavery, in the case of, you mentioned earlier, the indigenous people that still live in the Amazon, yeah. right? And use it as their home. That's an obviously a kind of theft because when we talk about Brazil owning um, the Amazon as their resource and not owing anybody else um, any sort of duties to that land, that very clearly just excludes people who depend upon the Amazon for their livelihood, um, the indigenous peoples there. And that makes very clear that it's a kind of theft, right? Because it's even in the first instance, it's a kind of theft, but that theft has to keep being done over and over and over again yes. to sort of assert the fact that the nation state and individuals who have power in that nation state own this resource and nobody else. Yeah. yeah I mean, in a very real sense, I know it's kind of a a pithy meme, but privatization is theft, right? And I almost wonder if, for me, the most disturbing thing when you were just talking about it, what really hit me about um, indigenous peoples being displaced. I mean, there's this quote that David Harvey uh, uses a lot, but it's accumulation by dispossession, right? And that's one of the ways that capitalism primarily functions is you can look uh, back at the English Enclosure Acts as maybe some people do as being the... uh, the, the burgeoning moments of what we call fully-fledged capitalism. And it's that logic of enclosure, right, where you build fences and you kick people off the land and you appropriate that land so you can put it to work as an input, as we were talking about earlier, as a factor of production. And I think maybe what's even more profoundly problematic with that process of privatization or of enclosure and um, accumulation by dispossession is precisely the fact that once everything gets territorialized like that, once everything becomes subjected to the process of privatization, um, then the the previous forms of commons, not just the land in the literal sense, but even like the way that we view our embeddedness as common, right? Like that. this is one of the things that you get when there's conflicts with, you know, Native Americans, for example, when European settlers come to North America, and the Native Americans are like, yeah, sure, of course you can have access to some of this land. Um, not always, of course, but yeah, because they didn't quite have the same logical framework that that the European colonizers had that was about dispossession, that was about uh, enclosure, that was about taking away for my singular use to the neglect of your use. It was much more of a mutual, cooperative common experience and sharing of what we call resources, right? And that completely gets discarded. So not just the commons in the literal sense, but the commons as kind of like uh, a rationale itself is completely eradicated, or maybe it's not completely eradicated, but it becomes squished and squeezed and extracted more and more and more until it seems to be quite non-existent. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, Okay, I have a question for you because I want to get to this before we end up uh, not talking about it because it's like the key question for me when okay. it comes to talking to people who have 
a more egalitarian impulse, like I think we do as regarding um, treatment of nature and duties to nature and how it involves yeah. everybody else. And the, you know, you mentioned Donna Haraway's, was it sympoetic? Sympoetic, yeah. Um, view of, is a sympoetic view of nature? Is that how she casts it? No, because she kind of rejects the idea of nature. But yeah, basically we'll say like a, a sympoetic view of um, like ecological entanglement. Okay, so the, the basic impulse there is, is to sort of focus on um, how you can't sort of stratify and break up uh, the world in such a way that um, it's individualized and doesn't have any sort of integration with the whole, right? Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who I think rightly bring up this idea to combat um, things that, uh, such as, you know, the instrumentalist view of nature that we're talking about here, right? And so they bring up this sort of metaphysical principle, which is everything is integrated, right? There yeah. are no individuals. Everything is part of a whole. Everything affects everything else. It's really what they're getting down to, right? It's like more like a causal principle. Everything affects everything else in some way. Mm-hmm. Nothing is a pure, um, you know, rationally developed, isolated, free individual. Um, I think that's right. I think that's correct. And I think that's really important. But I also think that lots of people with that egalitarian impulse or with an egalitarian impulse think that if you just if you just accept that metaphysical claim, then the egalitarian ethics falls out of it. Mm naturally it just it'll happen it's derived it's like immediately um derived right you don't have to have any inferences it's just there if you believe everything is integrated then you will treat uh nature and others in the world in such and such way and i don't think that that's automatic so what do you think the sort of automatic ethical implications are of this metaphysical underpinning I'm really glad you brought this up because I wouldn't have gone here. And I just finished writing a chapter for an edited volume on Sartre and Ecology. And one of the resources that I critically engage with, even though I really like his book that I'm that I'm working through, it's called The Birth of the Anthropocene. The guy's name is Jeremy Davies. One of the things he talks about is attuning ourselves to deep ecology, right? Uh, for him, it's in the form of like deep geological time. He wants us to actually feel ourselves. That's why he likes the term Anthropocene. He he likes this idea of viewing it as a as a an adequate geological periodization to shock us into thought, so that we feel ourselves as being as integral components of millions of years of geological time, right? And he thinks that. If we attune ourselves to that geological time, to deep ecology or deep history, um, then what that will do is it will engage a process of defamiliarization, right? It will kind of un, it'll scramble the codes, it'll deterritorialize us, right? And when I'm reading it, to me, I get a very Heideggerian thing going on here, right? Of like the uncanny and the ontological mood. And so I think a couple of things. One, what's the guarantee that that's going to lead to productive political engagement rather than a sense of nausea in the Sartrean sense? Because that's what Sartre explores in his novel Nausea is uh, Roquentin, 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 if you're a French speaker, you say it much better than the fuck I can. But 
Um, there's this scene where he's sitting in the park and all of a sudden, you know, like the park bench starts melding together in the trees and everything starts kind of melding together away from its individual and differentiated, uh, like components. And it all starts to meld together into what he talks about in being in nothingness. He calls it the slimy, which is fantastic. If you've never read being in nothingness, go to like page 700 something and just read about the fucking (laughs) slimy for 30 pages. It's fun. Um, but that's it, right? It's the slimy. So it doesn't lead to like a productive engagement. It doesn't motivate you. It leads to like absurdity and not and you're like, fuck, I I don't like being torn apart from this identity that I am because it's terrifying to come face to face with becoming and flux and flow, right? Um, so I, one, I don't know that like defamiliarizing is automatically guaranteed through the process of like attuning ourselves to deep ecology that it's going to lead to productive political praxis. And then here's my more important criticism. In Deleuze and Guattari's words, how do we guarantee that deterritorialization, that that scrambling, isn't just simply going to be re-territorialized by another process, right? Because that's yeah, what exactly. capitalism does. Capitalism is a process of deterritorialization. It is the process of scrambling, of axiomatization. It's just so good at re-legitimating itself instantly, right? So how do we guarantee that we're going to be able to actually productively, powerfully, normatively transform things? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm so glad that that you said all that because that's um, and especially tying it to Heidegger because I hadn't thought about that, but that's basically parallel with my kind of problem with Heidegger as we've talked about before in the podcast is that it's this assumption that there's a kind of undoing that you can do um, by sort of being engaged and being towards death, right? And that right. that sort of automatically ends in this Heidegger wouldn't frame it this way really is an ethical. Um, perspective or orientation towards the world or his version of the ethical orientation towards the world, right? Um, And I don't think that that's guaranteed at all. I (laughs) think that people sort of, and I'm I'm really glad you brought up that Sartre stuff because I think that I'm not familiar with that and that's really great. You can sort of view this sort of um, the the news every day about climate catastrophe as a sort of um, motivator for nihilism, Right. (laughs) Right. towards the idea that well ultimately everything's you know going to get shit canned anyway so including me so i can have this sympoetic view of nature um and the world and then basically be like you know what? it's all a drive towards nihilism and so i might as well contribute towards it because that's how it's <laughs> going to go anyway um mm-hmm. you i mean it's like the classic uh thing you tell kids to kind of blow their minds right that the heat death of the universe will happen in 10 billion years <laughs> and then see how they think about their everyday activity yeah that and sometimes kids get like freak the hell out about that, right? And yeah. rightfully so, because they think about the idea that you know, we just kind of assume that all of our actions and behaviors and things will sort of stand the test of time and exist in eternity. Mm. And it's not true. And for some people, they hear that and they just, you know, rolls off their back. But for other people, they hear that and they get a bout of existential anxiety because that mm. sort of short circuits the idea or the seriousness, seriousness with which they take their everyday actions as if they're going to last into eternity. Um, I think that's important to think about, not that you should scare kids by talking about the heat death of the universe. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of a dick move. But um, but the sort of to look at that every once in a while and and see how you react to it, because it could be towards nihilism or it could be towards a more egalitarian impulse, but neither is guaranteed. And there may be other options as well. And mm. I'm, I'm glad you ended up there by saying how we normatively respond to that, because I think that's the idea, right? Is that we ultimately have to have a sort of a normative orientation towards the world, something about um, how we should value the world in addition mm. to this metaphysical underpinning of the some poetic 
uh, integration of all things. Uh, those two things have to go together. Uh, one without the other, sort of the metaphysics without the normativity is, you know, can end up in nihilism. And the normativity without the metaphysics can end up in disaster because you don't actually know what you're doing to the world. Hmm. So what do you think, um, how do you think we start trying to think normatively about, because I mean, I think, I, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I think both of us are not going to just presume that like nature and culture are these radically distinct spheres of categories of being, right? We're going to probably have much more of a, a dialectical, maybe monistic view of things, right? You think? Dialectical maybe, but I probably wouldn't go down the monist angle as much as you might, given okay. your Spinoza's tendencies. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. You you, you kind of go down the, the Hegel path and I kind of stay on the Spinoza path, you know? Hegel like veers away from Spinoza and I kind of, <laughs> I can't, I keep going, let's keep going with Spinoza. Um, okay, so so then what do we think? How do we, how do we start to think normatively about us as conscious beings who whether or not we are or that we do, we somehow seem to think that we behave differently to other animals. We behave differently from other earthen entities, we might say. So how do you think we can start thinking about this sympoietic relationship, but normatively without trying to romanticize our ability to like just poetically connect with geological history or something like that? Yeah, that's the ultimate question, right? And I don't yeah. know that I have really good answers for that, but I'm glad that we can kind of tie this back into what we did for my shitty minute with the golden rule idea, right? Which mm. is the problem with the golden rule is that it becomes solipsistic and isolating. You sort of mm. introspect onto your own desires and then derive your, your normativity from there. And I think that can be exactly the problem. We start thinking um, anthropocentrically about how we're supposed to deal with nature. It kind of assumes this nature-culture divide where again, nature is just our instrument for dealing with things. Um, and we may also come to the conclusion that nature is an instrument and we should only use it uh, as befits the goods of animals writ large. Mm. Um, but I don't know if we should or not. But at the very yeah. least, we should start thinking, we should start doing that abstraction away from our own personal desires and ends and start thinking about how we should treat the rest of the world, whether it be human beings, animals, or plants or rocks. Um, and I don't know that I have like explicit answers for that, but I think that first step is the important point because mm. you can have the, all the metaphysics in the world about the integration of all things, but that's not by itself going to tell you how you should treat those things. Um, mm. It's a necessary but not sufficient condition for having um, an ethics towards the world. Yeah. Have you, have you always been environmentally aware or is this more of a recent thing because of the prominence of, you know, the ecological predicament just being shoved in our face constantly now? Yeah. I mean, definitely the latter, right? I mean, I think amongst the yeah. two of us, you've definitely had a more of an ecological impulse throughout your life. I think your whole like, uh, like oneness with nature <laughs> thing, that's kind of been like one of your sticks throughout the entire time that I've known you, right? Yeah. You've always wanted yeah. to kind of run away and live in nature. And um, I actually believe you probably could do it. I would definitely <laughs> die in like two days, but I think you would last a while. Like what's that movie with um, Viggo Mortensen where he takes his kids out and just lives in the woods? Mr. Fantastic. Oh, no. Captain Fantastic. Captain Fantastic. That's it. Yeah, yeah. 
Kevin. That's basically you, dude. Like that's one hundred percent you. I, I'm pretty sure you ghost wrote that movie. Yeah, and he's got a big dick too. So cool. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember Wait, that, in that scene? movie? What? Yeah, dude. There's a full frontal shot, and he's got a hog, man. I don't remember that. <laughs> Good on Vigo. I've seen his dick a couple times. I think you see it in History of Violence too, or something. Wait, don't I can't remember. don't actors wear like prosthetic though? I mean. Yeah, he could be, but because like you're nervous when the whole crew's watching you, so you're gonna shrivel up a bit. They have okay, to, I'm gonna like they're wearing I'm, prosthetic, right? Listen, I'm gonna give you and the audience a little insight into what actors this is, do. This is what I really want right now. Thank you. This is this. So I did a, a film. Uh, you can actually see it for people who want. It's on YouTube. It's called Let's Have a Threesome, made by Breaking Point Flicks. Um, did you ever see this, Troy? I did. Yeah. Yeah, it's a short film. Anyway. <laughs> uh, and I did another film that's called In Deep that played at some festivals. It actually played at Cannes in like 2014, and it's a short film, and it's kind of like this really intimate romantic relationship. But you know, my I'm I'm full on dick out. Uh, you don't see it. Uh, you might see it in In Deep, but people can't really access that because it's kind of a, a private kind of film. But um, but uh, but in let's have a threesome. I think you might get some moments where you're like, oh, is, are they actually naked? And there are some points where, you know, me and my co-star, because he was a good buddy of mine, where we were actually naked. But what we would do is you warm yourself up a little bit beforehand so that you make sure you're impressive <laughs> and for your co-stars. Even if it's not going to be on camera, you don't want like the camera crew to think that you're cold or that you don't, you know, have a piece. So you, you warm it up a little bit. You just kind of do a helicopter and just kind of you know, just make sure you get yourself primed with a little bit of blood flow down there. That's but don't you have to? Don't you have to do these scenes over and over again? So do you just do it between breaks over and over again? Yeah, dude. I mean, because you're not just standing there in front of everybody with your dick out the whole time. And yeah, a lot of times they're wearing socks. So dudes, they have these little uh, tan skin-colored socks that you can wear. Um, there are all kinds of tricks. But you know, sometimes for the hardcores that want to just like go full on, yeah, dude, you just gotta warm it up a little bit. It's okay. I could definitely see you being. One of the hardcores, for sure. Oh, yeah, dude. I don't give a fuck, man. I posed... I've, <laughs> I don't give a fuck, man. I've posed nude for uh, Glasgow before. There was like a... Almost like a full-sized picture of me with just my dick out. Uh, it's the Glasgow Gay like Artist Festival, and my friend Bob took gay photos, or gay photos, took nude photos of me for the thing. So I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'm cool. So he's a gay he's a gay photographer, and he was like, would you model for me? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, he's like, how far would you go? I'm like, oh, let's, let's do fully nude, brother. Like, come on, man. You know me. I'm down. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I talk about uh, breaking down the nature culture divide, man. I know, dude. I know. So, but yes, Captain Fantastic. I know. I... I I grew up going fly fishing. I grew up um, traveling with my mom. My mom's kind of more of a hippie type. And even though my dad isn't, he was a big time fisherman. And he loved going to Yellowstone National Park. And, you know, you go hiking six, seven hours away from the road. So you are just back with the bears and the trout or well, whatever it is that you're fishing. It's usually big, beautiful rainbow trout. Sometimes you get some browns too, but... Yeah, man, you're just out in the middle of nothing with deer and maybe some buffalo in the mountains, and I, it just, it was always, and then I and I went on like wagon trains when I was younger. I went whitewater rafting quite a bit, so I was constantly experiencing the non-urban, let's say, and it just, it, it makes my soul sing still to this day. I mean, look, like, I know most dudes probably follow like butt models and shit on Instagram. My my porn is like cabins and vans <laughs> that travel around and tiny houses and shit like that. Like that that's what my Instagram accounts. That's who I follow cuz I'm just obsessed with that shit. 
you know. Have you seen the movie Leave No Trace? That's not- about last year or the year before. No, no. Oh my god, it's a wonderful movie. Just thinking about Captain Fantastic when you think about it, it's about a uh, a veteran, American veteran, who um, has experienced some sort of trauma in war, and when he comes back, he and his I think like ten or twelve year old daughter um, decide to just live in the woods um, in a tent and be completely away from uh-huh. uh, all signs of culture. And yeah. it's a really brilliant film because it, it gets to the kind of emotional um, core of like trauma and family and things like that. But also there's no sense in which it's idealized in the way that mm. maybe Captain Fantastic can be a little bit right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd encourage anybody out there who Captain Fantastic is a lovely film. Um, I yes. enjoyed it thoroughly. I think Leave No Trace is a good second film to watch to kind of sober you up a little bit about idealized views of nature. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's so there's so much we could keep saying. I, I you know, I, I, I have really started to intellectually engage with this topic quite a bit more over the last year and a half, maybe two years, since the, really since the climate crisis has become something that has taken center stage in the socio-political consciousness. And so it's really forced me to think more intellectually about otherwise that what were just very sort of like, I don't know, infantile thoughts about nature and culture or just like really critical philosophical, like, you know, Bruno Latour's We Have Never Been Modern, There Is No Nature Culture Distinction kind of stuff, which is um, where I thought about things before. But now I'm trying to be much more serious you know, I'm a part of a climate justice collective here in Sydney, and I'm trying to be involved in some um, some ecologically attuned political and social movements. And yeah, it's it's been interesting because it's challenging me to think about things and um, that I maybe hadn't really challenged myself on. It's been interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think I as well, even though I haven't had that sort of deep affection for like living in quote unquote nature in the way that, that you had probably from your you know, younger years. Yeah. Um, I've always kind of felt that that um, sympoetic as Donna Haraway puts it, view of the world and the integration of all things is, is absolutely correct. And I had that, have had that impulse my entire life, I think mm. away from this sort of isolated individualism, but, and I don't think I ever, I've had this deep impulse about just like affection for nature. Um, mm. At least I haven't probably in the same way like the average person does, but uh, not any more than that. But I think that, you know, the last few years, um, especially, and I think this is just me personally, I think it's something that's existed the whole time, but I've just really come to recognize it, is that there's a, no way that you can stop yourself from thinking about the effects that everything we're doing is going to have on the world in the future, as well as immediate future. Um, and to ignore it is an action, like an act of ignorance you have to have. You can't just turn away. It's going to be everywhere you look. And so it's either going to be an active, controlled, purposeful ignorance, or you're going to have to deal with it in some way through thoughts. Um, and so, yeah, it's really more of just being forced upon it. I think, than anything, right? There's mm. just no way you can not think about these things right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, man. Well, is there anything else you want to say to kind of cap off this discussion? No, I think that we kind of broached most of the ideas we wanted to um, yeah. when we talked initially. And I think that it's really important to leave this open because mm. especially at this level of the, you know, what do we do about it? 
even if you have a really good, um, if you know, slightly general and abstract metaphysics, um, the normative aspect is extremely broad um, in terms of what you should do about it. So yes. um, that's an, an open question, I think. And it's a question that we have to continually broach as we find out more and more information about what it is we're doing to the world. Um, and as long as we keep that open, I think that's probably, well, I'm not gonna say the best we can do right now, but it's at, at least the minimum we can do right now. Mm. Yeah, because when you start thinking about the normative or the prescriptive, there are philosophical problems, there are political, there are geopolitical, political economic issues that arise like, okay, everyone needs to disinvest in, uh, disinvest in, in fossil fuels and only you know, shift towards green energy. And it's like, well, great. So then that means that we've allowed a few hundred years of Western nations to exploit these resources for rapid industrial development that has led to advances in transportation and technology and medical, biomedical resources and things like that. And now we're going to restrict that to everybody else in the Southern Hemisphere, <laughs> right? Like that's a contradiction to say that they can't. Now, obviously most people understand that. Like People understand various forms of modernization theory or development theory. They kind of understand that. So they're not going to cut them off. And so there's usually like um, the the Montreal, oh God, the Montreal Protocol, which was about reduction of the use of CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons. And then uh, it, it like started in 90, I can't remember what year it was. But anyway, it was like Western, Western nations have to wean off quicker than um, you know, developing or underdeveloped nations do, and so there are different like staggered processes. But still, it is, it is. There are these tensions that we need to work through. Um, that we that we need to recognize that once we start trying to prescribe political programs, that we need to really realize that there are these complex webs that are going to affect us. And that's not even talking about the other like philosophical problems about normatively then saying like we should just start thinking about green investment because again we're why investment? You know, why should we move towards technological progress? Like, why are those things important? Is that a good in itself? Um, is that tied to this modern theory of how everything is progressively moving towards like betterment and uh, driven by technological and, and economic progress? And so those are philosophical questions as well that we really need to kind of keep in the back of our minds so that when, when we're reading think pieces and when we're consuming news stories that, that we're thinking critically um, through and not just accepting what's being given to us, but we're thinking through those ideas and through those abstractions and kind of tearing them down so that we can productively kind of engage on the other side. Yeah, I think you're right to say that it's these these are importantly philosophical questions, right? They're not just gonna fall right out of the science. Um, you have to take yeah, the science exactly as as a as important information from which you can make decisions. But then we have to actually have a view of the world that we consider the ultimate goal and then in some ways act towards that. You can't just um, look at the fact that, you know, certain nations have a certain greater debt because of the amount of carbon that they've emitted in, into the atmosphere. And then right. also the fact that really importantly, um, the effects of climate change are not going to be dispersed equally and <laughs> somewhat ironically and unfortunately, they're going to be dispersed. It seems in the most unequal fashion, given that, um, you know, things like in Central South America and things along the equatorial line are going to suffer a lot more than the global north who did almost all of the emitting. Hmm. Um, and these are all, you know, things that make the sort of normative aspect much more complicated when trying to figure out um, the goal, the kind of goal society 
world that we want to have um, in the end of things to work towards. And without yeah. that, even an abstract version of that goal, um, there's, you're going to be kind of just left in this option paralysis about what to do. Because any answer you have is going to involve so much complex interaction between complicated nation states and governments and individuals that to just try to piecemeal it one by one is, is necessary right now because we don't have much of a choice, but it's, it's just not going to be effective um, in the end by itself. Yeah, as much as I don't take seriously like the fully automated luxury gay space communism kind of stuff, one of the things I love about it is that it's unwaveringly future it's un what is it it's unwaveringly i don't want to say utopian because that's not the right word but it is not afraid of saying this is the future we want right it's not afraid of it It, and and i think when you get people who are more measured like nick cernick and alex williams in inventing the future where a lot of these the fully automated luxury communism stuff comes from um they're obviously very clear that this like hyperstitional poetic is open and it's fluid and it's not a rigid projection of we want fully automated luxury gay space communism or whatever right it's it's much more that's kind of like no we we understand right now from our position that this is a demand we want but literally the next moment that we posit that demand that demand is kind of an empty placeholder it's this hyperstitional poetic is something that itself is processual and i think one of the things i like about that is that that there's such um there's such like a, resi- a reticence to unwaveringly say this is what we want, right? Like this is why like American liberals and the Democratic Party is so fucking impotent because they have no vision. The only thing that they can have as a vision is use stuff like hope and change or we need to galvanize each other and use our strengths as a country to blah, blah, blah. But no, no, that doesn't mean anything. How about we say like let's feed everybody in our country, Right? Let's clothe everybody in our country. Clean water for everybody, right? Equal rights, really, for everybody, um, whatever it is. Like, you make those concrete demands that are these projections into the future, and you work towards them. And, you know, like we understand from critical legal studies, like uh, Roberto Unger, that these things are in in process themselves. Like, even laws are constantly in a process. Like, Heidi Matthews talks about that when she was on our podcast the first time, you know, that there are these technologies that are uh, perpetually being constructed and unconstructed and reconstructed and stuff like that. But to think unwaveringly and uh, and almost normatively, I guess, but yeah, to think unwaveringly and positively and optimistically about future visions is something that I think that I'm starting to become more and more comfortable with. Like I've, I've speculatively written about it, but I think now I'm starting to like really actually crave it and desire it in my own life, you know, just yeah. being more clear about what I want. Yeah, you know, th- there are some issues with Falk, you know, fully automated luxury communism. Um, yes, d- a ton. In terms of how it can yeah. be, you know, uh, narrowly focused and exclusionary in certain respects and, and not involving all pr- different perspectives. But the problem is not the commitment, right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think that the more like, you know, classically liberal and today politically centrist view is that commitment is the problem. Wanting yeah. a certain world is the problem. And you need yeah. to sort of divorce yourself from that and just be satisfied with the way with like basic liberal rights. And I think that that's an incoherent view ultimately. Um, and the commitment is not the problem in that space. And mm. so having a non-rigid, you know, committed end goal 
is not a problem. It's actually a, you know, it's a feature, not a bug. And so yeah. can there come a time where you have an all too rigid, um, you know, end world in view, and that becomes more of a, a detriment to building that world in the first place? Yeah, that can happen. But that's not the problem right now. Certainly not. And we need a little bit more commitment, not less. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Because, you know, liberal political civil rights, that itself involves commitment, and not everyone shares that. So <laughs> um, it's something you have to have, even if you think that you're you know, savvy enough and mature enough not to have it. Right. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, I say we go ahead and wrap it up there, brother. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Ellipses as usual. Ellipses as usual. Indeed. Alright, so should we talk a little bit about what's uh, going well for us since we've just been talking about the destruction of the, of the world? Yeah, let's do it, brother. Alright, so this is the part of the podcast, the Sticky Leaves section, where one of us talks about whatever it is that's giving us meaning in uh, the universe which will eventually end in heat death. So, <laughs> Austin, what's doing it for you this week? So, did you see my tweet about the baby shark ab workout? I uh, did not. When was this? today so oh, okay. uh yeah so yeah you, it's my you morning probably, so i haven't done that yet <laughs> yeah that's a good point so you haven't you haven't gone on to twitter yet um well i tweeted out that i am going to do over the next 30 days i'm going to do the baby shark ab challenge do you know the song baby shark i'm not sure i can imagine a worse combination of words but do go on i do know do about not, the song yes okay so it's like the most addicting child song and it became this huge international sensation but there is an ab workout that has been developed to coordinate with the song so you have different movements for baby shark mommy shark daddy shark grandma shark grandpa shark let's go run you know let's all the other stuff right and the each time through the song is only like it's almost two minutes it's like a minute 45 a minute 50 something like that and then you can kind of you rest and you can do it multiple times but i'm going to do it every day for the month of september but i actually started like for people that are listening this episode's going to come out you know a few days into september but um it's it's not the first yet it's the 31st actually it's midnight on the first now so it is the first of september but i started it on the 31st of august but i'm going to do it every single day and i've been recruiting people on twitter to participate in this 30-day baby shark ab challenge with me and we are calling it absurdity (laughs) and uh we are going to do the baby shark workout and maybe have like a little bit of philosophical discussion about the value of workout memes you know, like the memification of workouts, like these these challenges and things like that. And uh, we're going to see what results we're getting. We're going to post our progress picks, uh, hopefully up on Twitter. I'm going to try and see. I mean, I already posted a pick. I posted my before pick. And so now we'll see what happens in 30, in 30 days or 31 days or whatever. So I'm recruiting everybody that's listening. If you have made it this far and did the podcast, I want you to join us. Join us in the absurdity of doing a baby shark ab workout for 30 days and then post your befores and afters and if you don't feel comfortable posting your pictures that's great just at least tweet about how you did and how many you did i did i did four rotations today and it gave me a nice burn and my goal is to get quick pretty quickly up to doing it 10 times all the way through and doing about 15 second rest in between and i think i can work to that by uh 
by maybe halfway, midway through the month, but then the goal is maybe by the end of the month for sure I'll be able to do 10 times or more and then really just higher intensity, uh, less rest by the end of the month. So, And then we'll see what we do. I post the before and I'll post the after. Or the after. So I'm recruiting you too, Troy. Are you going to do this with us? Are you going to so, do it? So I'm taking it that you saw um, the oncoming eco-catastrophe and you've adopted nihilism as your stance. <laughs> no, man. I figure in the same way that we should care and respect and nurture our ecosystems, we should view our bodies as ecosystems and you should care. So, tor- so torturing it is okay? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a productive strength is what it is. Yeah, that's a euphemism. But uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I will not be joining you in absurdity. But I will absolutely uh, be a, a welcoming like voyeur to the process to see um, how your mind state is affected by listening to this song ten times a day. I know, man. I yeah, the funny thing is, I actually don't hate it. The problem is, it does get stuck in my head. Like it, it's it's like it's a small world. It, once it's in there, it just. For, I'm not shitting you for weeks. Oh yeah, it's like. It's a weapon. It's weaponized melody, right? <laughs> it totally it's like is. it's like the ultimate form of like artistic or aesthetic nihilism. <laughs> totally. And that it's yeah, it's weaponized to make you remember it in the most annoying, torturous possible way. Yeah. That's that's, that's the totally. future of aesthetics is like weaponized uh songs like this to sort of get into your head and make you buy shit from Amazon or whatever. Right. Well, I mean but the thing is, though, is because it's weaponized and because it's so catchy, it kind of just gets you in a groove and it, it has this like bouncy joy about it that, you know, you, you get a good workout and you get a good burn in and it doesn't, it's not like you're just sitting there with your own thoughts or that you're listening to punk rock music, which can do it, which is good for me too, because then it makes me just want to like punch something and that's always good for a workout. Um, but this is kind of nice because you're just like bouncing along, you know? What is that... that- famous Kierkegaard quote where he says like the world will end with somebody running on stage and like screaming about it. But then everyone thinks that it's part of the performance. And so they clap and laugh. <laughs> it's something like I that, right? That's but great. That's, that's going to be with baby shark playing as the world burns down. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone I'm down for out workouts. Now <laughs> I, I do want to say there's another layer to this. So we got to give a mad shout out to Jonathan. I think he, he listens. I don't know if he listens to all the episodes, but Jonathan, if you're listening, brother, thank you for this. So Jonathan's going to participate. He, uh, he's already signed up for this. I've got a handful of people that have signed up for this and, uh, we were talking about it and he's the one who coined the term absurdity. So this is why I said, cause this is, this was his tweet. Uh, he said, I feel like this is the loudest I can scream into the void of absurdity and I love it. He said, see you on the other side, brother. And then I said, yes, let's do it. Have a little quirky fun. And I said, by the way, we should totally use absurdity as a motivational term for being philosophically robust and philosophically, I'm sorry, philosophically robust and physically vital. And then he said, gotta flex all the muscles. And I said, and that's the slogan. So it's the baby shark absurdity workout because you gotta flex all the muscles. Is that supposed to be, have a dual meaning to it? Yeah, your brain and your body. How is this involving your brain other than destroying it and poisoning it? No, because we're going to talk a little bit about, like, you know, the memification of workouts and shit. Oh, at the okay. Same yeah, time. I forgot about that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I guess you have to do some, like, performative parts since, you know, you know, art and philosophy have to go hand in hand and marry yeah, together, right? Okay. Yeah. And there's just something absurd about doing a, like, intense ab workout to an annoying child song. So I think, like, 
that that level of I don't know superficial absurdity is itself kind of philosophically productive if you want to think through it. So I'm I'm down for it, man. So I'm recruiting people. Go to my Twitter uh, and and follow along. Post your results and let's do it every day for the month of September. So if you're only hearing this and it's like the fifth of September or the seventh of September, join in. Do it for your 30 days. Just join in and then post your results. Let us know and and share with other people. Start recruiting your own. Let's make this a thing. You know, the baby shark month of September absurdity workout where you got to flex all your muscles. Boom. Okay, so we'll have a little contest here, an informal contest throughout this month. You okay. do the uh, absurdity workout. I will listen to the new Tool album for the next <laughs> month and we'll see who comes out happier and uh with better forms of thought all right i actually heard though that i i have a friend who's a huge tool fan and he's been tweeting about the album and he basically said the new tool album's great he's like but i am a fucking tool homer he's like so i'm just gonna love anything they do he's like but basically this is like if you input into an ai system and you said make a new tool album <laughs> this album got made i know dude I, i've only heard the the first single they released i try not to listen to the rest of it until it actually comes out um, yeah. And it sounded exactly like a kind of a, almost like a really good parody of Tool. I was a bit worried about that, but I'm still going to give it the time of day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I probably will too, uh, just because I respect Tool, and I think Maynard's voice is like I, is fan fucking tastic. It's like haunting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. So that's my sticky leaves. Uh, I'm just recruiting people to get involved in absurdity for a month. And ladies, you need to get involved in this too. This isn't just a dude thing. All right. Ladies, you get involved. Dudes, get involved. Let me know what's going on. You can post your befores. And I would say if we're going to post pics, only do like once a week. You don't need to post a pic every day or something like that because you're not going to see as much progress. I mean, you can take your own daily pics. That's good for you. But, you know, let's post like once a week. I'm going to post once a week. So I posted one today. I'll post one in my second week, third week, and then fourth week, and then on the last day, on like day 30 or whatever, like the very last day of September before we go into October. So let's do that shit. It'll be fun. Maybe. <laughs> I hope some unintentional comedy comes out of this so that I can have a good time as a voice. Like I strain an ab muscle and they're like, how did you strain your ab muscle, bro? <laughs> uh, I was doing the baby shark ab workout. <laughs> well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap things up there. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you all for tuning in once again. Uh, please, if you want to follow along with us, find us on Twitter at owls underscore at underscore Dawn. Same on Insta. You can send us messages there. Ask us questions. Uh, you can email us owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. What else, T-Roy? You can also find us at owls at dawn.com if you want to leave comments for the episode. And also, we want to reiterate, as we said in previous episodes, that if you give us a five-star rating on review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell it's called now. Um, if you ask a short, quick question, we will briefly respond to it in the next episode. So do that. Sweet. Well, I think that's pretty much it, man. Is there anything else we got to do? Just one more thing I can think of. Please. What's that? For the 101st time, Dasta Dania, Narcan. Narcan.